Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The skies set blazing all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around. Before we run aground, we gotta turn this ship around. Before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life with the Birches by calling 224-9111. I'm joined by Chris Ryan. Chris Welcome to Off the Record. It's great to be here, Paul. Well, wait a second. I've, I, I, wait, wait. Here it comes. I've got a, a news flash from Radio Moscow. Oh, today we have learned here in the Radio Moscow that in stunning rebuke to Donald Trumpetinsky, dozen defecting Republican joined Senate Democrats Thursday to block the national emergency President Trump declared so he could build border wall with Mexico. Rejection kept a week of confrontation with White House as both parties in Congress trying to exert their power in the ways. This is very bad for Vladimir Putin. It seems like Donald Trump first chink in the wall. So, it's making global news, folks. The United States Senate, that august body populated by senior members of both parties, the wise heads, Democrats and Republicans, Republicans actually crossed the aisle. They actually stood up on two legs. They actually discovered where their backbones began and ended and voted against the crazy Donald Trump's a national emergency, non-emergency border wall funding bill. I cannot, I'm thinking back, Chris Ryan, I'm trying to remember when in the past few years since Donald Trump Olthinsky, the P- Putin puppet, took office that the United States Senate has delivered such a stinging rebuke. And if this is the first time, if it is the first time, will it be the last? Or is this the first break in the wall, so to speak, of Donald Trump's popularity. It's interesting. I talked with um, Senator Hassan about exactly this, um, because to me, this is kind of a signature, uh, potentially a signature moment for Republicans in the U.S. Senate. And it was really led by Rand Paul. 
And once Rand Paul said that he was going to vote against um, the uh, the national emergency and um, join the rebuke, that um, other Republicans felt comfortable in doing so. And is this, in fact, going to lead to uh, future Republican opposition to, to Trump? I think that um, you know, each situation is going to be different. And I also believe um, that Donald Trump does not want there to be a wall. Um, he does not want there to be a wall at all, because this is going to be a key part of his uh, reelect in the fact that he is not just going to, um, he's, he's got work that hasn't been finished, and he doesn't want to just be elected by himself. He wants to be elected with Trump Republicans in the House and the Senate. He is he is going to run against Congress and say, it's Congress's problem. Congress doesn't do anything. I need people like me to be in the House and the Senate. And it is their fault that um, my wall was not built. It is their fault uh, that um, Obamacare is, to some extent, still the law of the land. And um, that's going to be his. That's going to be his general uh, general election bid. Is that uh, this problem is a little bit worse than I thought, um, and I need uh, you know real uh, Republicans like me to um, to make things happen. <laughs> Everybody runs against Congress. Congress is the easiest target, you know, target no, no in the world to run against. As, my, as John McCain would say, the only people who approve of Congress are staffers and blood relatives. That's it. And and most of the staffers don't really. They just say they do. <laughs> and the blood relatives won't get invited to Thanksgiving if they say anything else. Oh, yeah, well, you're my cousin. Yeah, you're doing a great job, cuz. We, we love it. You know, now, some of the 12 senators included uh, Mitt Romney, of Utah. Now he's of Utah. Um, did you see Mitt Romney blow out his birthday cake? I did you ha- not. Have to, you have to see this, boys and girls. So uh, he takes, it's he likes Twinkies, apparently. Uh-huh. He's the one. And um, it is a birthday cake of a massive amount of Twinkies. I like that. And he takes every single candle off individually oh, and blows it out. Now, I don't know if there were 70, but there are a lot of there. And it's like, he takes it up and goes, and then picks off another one. Instead of well, how... Hey, you know, we normally blow out birthday uh, candles, which listen, is, listen, you go listen, all in. That, that's staff work, okay? <laughs> that, that, what's going on there is good staff work. I don't think so. Yeah, no, no. They, they do not want their senator embarrassed by... Um, not being uh, able to blow. either being called a blowhard for blowing hard <laughs> and not being able to get the candles, or a blowhard and making a mess of the cake. Either way, Mitt Romney faced a a terrifying loss, so he did the only smart thing: m- m- pick them out one at a time, like you were <laughs> picking daisies, <laughs> and blow each one out <laughs> at some interminable length of time while the cameras were rolling. Uh, but now, some of the others uh, who voted against are also interesting. There's there's the old um, uh, red plaid uh, lumberjack, uh, Lamar Alexander, said, the Senate's waking up a little bit to our responsibilities. He said the chamber's become a little lazy as an equal branch of government. I think the value of these last few weeks is to remind the Senate of our constitutional place. Well, Lamar, I'm glad that you reminded yourself of the Senate's constitutional place uh, because uh, we haven't seen a Senate with a reminder of its constitutional place in in years now. You guys all seem to have been bending over backwards to accommodate Donald Trump Olfinsky. I mean, you've even become, like, it appears, friends of Russia because you haven't been able to hold him accountable for nothing. 
Now, one other closer-to-home vote that's really interesting is Senator Susan Collins, our neighboring senator from the state of Maine, the on-again, off-again moderate, the sometimes uh, sometimes moderate person who has is facing a re-election bid in 2020, and a lot of people think she's very vulnerable. She joined the bipartisan vote uh, against Donald Trump's uh, border emergency. Uh, you think she's a little bit scared? So this is an interesting vote because, again, um, you never want to be the deciding vote in these situations. Rand Paul was the deciding vote. So after that, it's basically you know a, a vote of quote-unquote conscience, and um, which is basically reading the tea leaves of what's the ramifications going to be. Is it worse if I vote for this or against it? And so Susan Collins looks at this and says, you know, this is not good legislation, um, and uh, the independent folks are probably going to like me doing this, but, you know, if I vote, do I get a primary opponent? So this is all the stuff that goes through, if I vote against it, do I get a primary opponent, and, um, you know, do do I make Donald Trump angry? So these are all the things that go through the minds of um, individuals, and they poll test it, obviously, as you well know. And uh, Susan Collins had decided that uh, on this particular issue, she was going to um, show a little independence. So where was Susan Collins on the earlier vote? Because uh, on Wednesday, the Senate voted uh, on Yemen, um, invoking the decades-old War Powers Act to try to rein in a president. Seven Republicans joined Democrats in halting U.S. backing for the Saudi Arabia-led coalition in the aftermath of Saudi Arabia's role in the killing and dismembering of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, clearly orchestrated and ordered by the top, the the crown prince who Jared Kushner went over to make nice to. Uh, where was Susan Collins on that vote? So I think what you're uh, discussing is the uh, the joint resolution, which was voted upon on uh, Wednesday, and um, that was uh, voted for by Collins, and she was uh, in the majority, 54 to uh, 46 in that instance. Yeah, so, I mean, these are two votes in one week, Wednesday and Thursday, that Senator Collins is taking the save-my-bacon approach to politics. Um, she knows that she has um, gotten voters... Both in- uh, Senator Shaheen and Senator Hassan also voted in the uh, majority. Yeah, well, I would assume they would. But for Senator Collins, she's now broken twice in one week with Donald Trump, and she's trying to rack up the scorecard so she can say to people in Maine, you see, I really am an independent voice for Maine um, uh, on, these, uh, on, these two, on these two votes. Neither of... And what will be really interesting is going to be... Um, how the president responds. We know that on the on the emergency declaration, he's already said he's going to veto it. Um, uh, whether or we don't think there are enough votes uh, to override that veto, uh, there may be in the House, but there certainly uh, probably won't be in the Senate. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the senators try to um, uh, wheedle their way through supporting Trump. Um, after he uh, puts a veto on the emergency declaration bill. And I don't know what he's going to do about the joint resolution. He doesn't really care about a joint resolution. He doesn't really care what anybody tells him to do about anything. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, so, so, so there we are. Now, meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, the hits just keep on coming for the president because his campaign chair, longtime buddy Paul Manafort, 
uh, ended up after a lot of of uh, Sturm und Drang in the courtroom with a total sentence of seven and a half years in jail, uh, which for a 69-year-old guy in a wheelchair who says he has gout um, is not a it's not a happy place to be. Paul Manafort no longer looks like a happy, confident huckster. He kind of <laughs> looks like a guy who's been caught, yeah. um, not only caught, but um, really hammered. And there was an outcry about the the first sentence he was he was given as way too light. He was given a four and a half year sentence for uh, lots and lots of crimes uh, by a judge to whom the special prosecutor recommended 19 to uh, 24 years. Um, and there was an outcry about the leniency of the sentence, and there was not a similar outcry around the second sentencing, part of which was made to run consecutively, i.e. at the same time as the first sentence, and part of which stretched on afterwards for a total of seven and a half years. But probably the biggest news for Manafort and for Trump, uh, because Manafort has been playing for a pardon this whole time, is that the uh, New York authorities brought a 16-count indictment against Manafort immediately following his sentencing, so that even if the president pardons Manafort on the federal crimes, he would be immediately arrested uh, and held to account for crimes um, uh, in New York that are state crimes, and the president has no power to pardon uh, for, for that. And in a signal that Mueller is getting close to the end, but we can't read the tea leaves, um, the special counsel has said that it's done with Michael Flynn, and Flynn, who cooperated, is expected to receive little or no jail time. And the question that everybody keeps asking, uh, and we'll stop uh, after this uh, short discussion, is, is Mueller done? When is he going to be done? Does he have enough? And when is he going to release his report? And will we ever get to see it? Like uh, Eric Swalwell said, uh, the congressman from uh, California who is thinking about running for president, Mueller will be done when he is done. I don't think that um, any inclinations that you uh, may have in regards to what the Justice Department is saying or what the media is saying, um, I, I just think that um, you know trying to read the tea leaves on this is, is difficult. And um, you, you would assume, given the amount of time and given the players involved, that we're drawing close to a, a conclusion – but um, we're trying to determine what that conclusion is going to be in the timetable, you know, particularly after we've been talking about this for years and years and years, is is a fool's errand. Yeah, it is. And uh, uh, the and the counter is that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. Yeah, this was odd. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, said, you know, I really don't think we ought to be talking about impeachment. And, you know, on one hand, she's... Um, uh, she seems to be acknowledging the political reality that that at certainly now, uh, with an inconclusive um, uh, uh, investigations still going on in the House and really having just begun in the House now that we Democrats have the majority, with Mueller's report not being public, um, and with Donald Trump uh, somewhat besieged as we've seen with the Senate votes and others, maybe Nancy Pelosi is cleverly playing a long game saying the best thing that Democrats can do is have Donald Trump to keep punching at for the next two years until the elections in 2020. 
It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet. And you can find us archived at nhtalkradio.com. We're brought to you by The Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at The Birches. Call 224-9111. Don't go away. We'll be back to talk about the high price of prescription drugs. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Well, I'm very happy to be joined today by a good friend and an old working colleague, not old, but former working colleague when I was in Congress, Max, Max Rickman. He's a former staff director of the Senate Special Committee on Aging, a 16-year veteran of Capitol Hill. Max is president and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, one of the nation's most influential senior advocacy and education membership organizations, and one that I worked very closely with when I was in Congress because preserving Social Security and Medicare are really a top priority and should be for for uh, anyone in service in the nation's capital, except, of course, our president, who apparently in his budget slashed Medicare, uh, Medicaid, and Social Security, despite his promises. Oh, well. And we're going to be talking today about the incredibly high price of prescription drugs. Um, Max, the pharmaceutical industry produces medicines that importantly relieve pain, treat disease, and save lives. But unfortunately, that's only if you can afford them. I know that uh, seniors in New Hampshire, in New England, all around the country who are retired or living on fixed incomes are often facing a very serious dilemma. Many of the drugs that that they need and that they've been prescribed have become so expensive that they force people to cut their dosages in half so they can afford to put food on the table. So people are having to choose between life-saving medicine or eating. And uh, the basic survival of eating often lives, uh, often takes precedence, and it's, it's, really, it's really, really tough. How did we get here, and and what is Congress doing about the high cost of prescription drugs now that the Democrats have taken over the House? Well, uh, Paul, first of all, let me thank you for inviting me uh, to be on your program. And you you were correct when you characterized me as an old friend. Uh, I've (laughs) I've been around, as you know, I was staff director of the U.S. Senate Committee on Aging back in the 80s, so I've been in this uh, battle for for a long time. Uh, you're absolutely right uh, the way you describe the uh, pain that is felt by so many people when they're unable to appropriately uh, take their, their medicine, either by cutting it in half or skipping days or uh, any 
anything they can do to stretch out and, and hold down the cost to themselves. You know, we, we got there to this point essentially because uh, we're, we're basically at the mercy of the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I watched uh, the Senate hearing uh, Finance Committee uh, a week ago where uh, uh, seven of the CEOs of the top pharmaceutical companies uh, testified. And uh, frankly, uh, listening to that t- testimony, I-, I was appalled at the way <clears throat> these executives tried to portray themselves as uh, basically misunderstood humanitarians uh, who were trying to help people. Uh, if they were really trying to help people, they would uh, do whatever they could uh, to hold down the cost and uh, provide the medicine that people need. You know, there are options, and I think we may be uh, at a kind of a watershed moment here in Congress, especially with uh, a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives, where we uh, can see some progress, and there are a number of bipartisan uh, proposals being considered in the Congress that I think have a good chance of uh, making it all the way through the process and becoming law. So hopefully we can talk about some of those. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm thinking back, Max, to a time uh, just before I got to Congress. I got there in 2006. Um, my recollection is that, and, and you'll—I know you're—you're—you have a much better memory than I do, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But my recollection is that Medicare Part D um, was a program that that came in uh, before I got there in 2006. I think it was two, may have been 2004, um, and my recollection is that. When the House of Representatives was considering uh, prescription drugs, there was a battle about whether or not to allow the government, uh, which runs Medicare, um, it's a government program, folks, a single-payer government program, and it runs Medicare. Uh, Many wanted the government to be able to negotiate uh, drug prices for Medicare, just like the government negotiates drug prices in the military um, and in other programs. But my recollection was that there was a single uh, vote that was in the balance. It was a guy named Billy Tozen. And my recollection is that there was a lot of drama on the House floor around the vote. And ultimately, Billy Tozen, in some in a late night vote, it was held open for hours and hours and hours, while the then Republican majority worked Billy Tozen over, and ultimately he voted with uh, the Republicans to prevent the government from negotiating for. Uh, for negotiating drug prices using its leverage with the millions and millions of people um, uh, in Medicare. And my further recollection is that the next thing I heard about Billy Tozen was that he went to work as the chief of government relations, the head lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry. Am I, am, am I, am I, am I remembering this correctly? Well, uh, you are. Your, your memory is quite good, and you, you laid out the facts uh, as clearly as I've heard them laid out ever. 
the Medicare added a prescription drug benefit in 2003. Uh, it's, it's the Part B Medicare program, and that's good. We supported uh, bringing prescription drugs uh, into the Medicare coverage. Uh, but unfortunately, in that late-night session, and I was in the gallery till about 2 in the morning, and they went, then I went home and, and uh, I watched that boat held open for three or four hours. Uh, enough arms were twisted so that the pharmaceutical companies could declare victory because the bottom line in the, in the debate, as you accurately described it, was will the government, Medicare, uh, have the ability... Uh, to negotiate for prescription drug prices with the pharmaceutical companies. And we lost that. We lost that battle. And the result has been uh, in, in uh, what, 16 years since then, that uh, the government and Medicare beneficiaries have paid much more than they would have if that leverage would have been uh, mandated, not just allowed, but mandated, so that the government would... Uh, have to negotiate for the best price. You know, Paul, it makes no sense to have an entity representing over 40 million people that is specifically prohibited by law into negotiating for the best price. Now, you know who was in the room when that deal was made, and it was not the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. It was the pharmaceutical companies, and uh, uh, Congressman Tozan left the Congress shortly after that and became the head of the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Research Association, their, their lobbying arm. So it, it does smell, doesn't it, uh, that, that uh, his reward would come at the expense of, uh, of Medicare beneficiaries, consumers, people who need medicine, and at the expense of the government. We have been trying ever since to turn that around and have been blocked uh, by uh, the Republican uh, Congress or a Republican president. And now we have, for the first time, we have a, a, a majority of Democrats in the House of Representatives. And the chairman of the Health Subcommittee of the Ways and Means Committee has introduced some groundbreaking legislation that essentially would reverse that 2003 provision in the Medicare prescription drug law and tell uh, the government, you have to negotiate. You have to negotiate with the pharmaceutical company. Uh, that congressman is uh, Lloyd Doggett of Texas. He's already introduced legislation. He's already had hearings. And I think we're going to get uh, that legislation passed. It could save between 120 and 130 billion dollars. Uh, that would come uh, uh, into the uh, coffers of the of the government and would remain in the pockets of Medicare beneficiaries over over time. So, uh, you know, what happens after that if it passes the House of Representatives? Of course, it goes to the Senate where Democrats are in the minority. But I think there's going to be an immense amount of pressure on senators who have been hearing about this uh, throughout the, the last few campaigns. And I think it reached a crescendo uh, in the last campaign. So many uh, members of Congress campaigned 
on the, uh, the need to bring down the cost of prescription drugs. House, Senate, Democrat, Republican, challengers, incumbents. I think, uh, I think we're going to reach a point where we will hopefully have some success during the course of the next year and a half, uh, the duration of this Congress. This would be a huge step towards bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. It is the issue that we are focused on. There are other proposals that also have great merit, and uh, uh, I'm hoping those will have some traction as well. You know, what's what's so startling in, in thinking about the fact that it's taken uh, 16 years to begin to think that we might uh, make some progress on this is that the United States, which has um, a terrific technological system of delivering uh, health care, uh, has higher costs than almost any other system, certainly in the developed world. And our prescription drug prices are, are higher, too. Um, it, all of us suffer through uh, the television ads. I mean, you cannot watch TV these days without seeing a, a blizzard. Uh, really, it's a whiteout of ads for this drug, that drug, um, um, and most most of the ad, of course, is uh, is filled with the warnings about the side effects. You know, um, if you <laughs> be careful if you take this drug, and uh, if you die, you better call your physician right away. Um, <laughs> and it's it's just it's astonishing the amount of money that the pharmaceutical companies spend on both lobbying and uh, advertising to to try to influence the dialogue is 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 pretty astonishing but not given the profits that the pharmaceutical uh, companies uh, say they're entitled to given the costs of developing new drugs and bringing them uh, bringing them to market and I'm not I, I wouldn't for a moment argue against uh, life-saving medicine or the research uh, that needs to go into it or the or 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 the work that they have to do um, on the other hand, it seems to me that the very effective lobbying efforts that the pharmaceutical industry has mounted are real examples of a kind of corporatocracy that is governing our politics instead of uh, the people having having a say. Um, I've got to think that the legislators who did not allow um, the government to negotiate for for prescription drug prices in Medicare and the president uh, who who supports it and the legislators who are um, opposing it now uh, must be receiving uh, the largesse of the pharmaceutical companies. We are talking on Off the Record with Paul Hodes with Max Rickman, president and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, one of the nation's most influential senior advocacy and education membership organizations. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. We'll be back with more of Off the Record with Paul Hodes after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet 
at nhtalkradio.com. And if you visit nhtalkradio.com, you can find our shows archived and you can binge listen to your heart's content. We're brought to you by The Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at The Birches by calling 224-9111. I want to welcome back to Off the Record, Max Rickman, former staff director of the Senate Special Committee on Aging, a longtime veteran of Capitol Hill. Max is president and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, uh, one of the nation's most influential senior advocacy and education membership organizations, one I worked with closely when I was in Congress and one I care a lot about because I'm receiving Social Security and I'm on Medicare. And um, the work that Max, you and the committee are doing uh, is really crucial, especially now when we are looking at the possibility of some progress in the House on uh, allowing the government finally to negotiate drug prices for Medicare. It seems to me a no-brainer, but it's sure taken a long time to come to the front of the legislative agenda, and it's taken, of course, a Democratic majority. Well, Paul, you you paint before the break. You painted uh, a grim but very accurate picture of the state of play uh, on prescription drugs and what's been happening over the last uh, 13 years that has allowed uh, in the Congress that has allowed the pharmaceutical companies to to make obscene profits. You know, they they are able to market and sell. Uh, drugs in other countries, Canada, for instance, at uh, um, uh, their profit margin is is still tremendous, but not as obscene as it is in in this country. So, uh, you know, we talked about the uh, ability, uh, the inability currently of the federal government to negotiate for the best price. And I was particularly intrigued by your comments of the television ads. We hear so often in testimony, and and the pharmaceutical CEOs testified uh, before Congress in the last couple of weeks before various committees, and they're still uh, uh, maintaining that these high prices are necessary for them to make the kind of money that that, uh, will allow them to plow these uh, resources that are necessary into developing and bringing a groundbreaking drugs to market. My question to them has been for a long time, well, how much money are you spending on all those television ads? You're absolutely right. It's impossible to watch television for more than 30 or 40 minutes and not be bombarded by these ads. Furthermore, so much of the cost of the research that is engaged in is paid for by the taxpayer. Paid for by the taxpayer, by by, uh, for example, the National Institute of Health, many other programs that provide the resources necessary to uh, to do the research on these uh, on the groundbreaking drugs that are so important. So here we are, where the taxpayer is paying for so much of the research, and then then the taxpayer is burdened with these uh, outrageous prices that they have to pay for for their medicine. I mentioned a couple of, uh, uh, I'd like to mention a couple of uh, other uh, uh, 
pieces of legislation, proposals, if you will, yeah. that I think have a lot of traction, mainly because they're bipartisan. Yep. Uh, we have uh, un- currently the pharmaceutical companies are able to game, game the system and pay to de- for delaying tactics that they're able to use to postpone uh, competition from generics. This is outrageous. And there is a bill in the Congress that would, uh, would stop this and bring these generics to market much sooner, stop the delaying tactics that are used. You know, often the drug companies will, when it's, uh, when it's about time for a generic uh, to be able to be brought to market, they'll, they'll, they may change a, a tiny component of a drug which starts the clock running again. There's a bill in the, in the Senate sponsored by Senator Charles Grassley, and you know he's the chair of the powerful Senate Finance Committee, and Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota that would help uh, restrict this uh, ability that the pharmaceutical companies now employ to delay these uh, mar- uh, generics from coming to market. I think given the fact that it is uh, sponsored by Democrat and a Republican uh, means that we may see some positive movement uh, on that legislation. Then there's the entire issue of allowing uh, drugs to be re-imported in the United States from Canada, same drugs, go through the same uh, procedures to make sure that they're safe. Uh, Those drugs are much cheaper in Canada. Under current law, uh, consumers are not able to import them. Often, we, you know, I know you've heard, especially in your part of the country, close to Canada, there are members of Congress that have, I know have taken busloads of seniors across the border to buy their drugs. But for the most part, that is unavailable uh, to, to most Americans, to most Medicare beneficiaries, of course, as well. So that, I think is getting a lot of uh, traction in the Congress, and I think we may see some legislation move through the House and the Senate that will change that. But make no mistake, the pharmaceutical companies will fight all of these proposals, whether it's generics, negotiation, uh, importation, they'll fight them tooth and nail. So it's going to take consumers who are motivated and will go to town hall meetings and will tell their representatives, Democrat or Republican, we want you to support the, these proposals. We want you to vote the right way. You know, it it there is no substitute for grassroots action. And in fact, it's going to take overall um, a grassroots uprising in this country and an ev- an evil an, an evolution of a revolution about taking back our democracy to deal with uh, the power of the corporate pharma lobby. Here's, here's just some, something interesting, that um, obviously the call for drug pricing reform may, may finally become a bipartisan issue. But if you take a look at the amount of money that, is, that, that, that uh, Big Pharma has spent, since 2009, 15 Republican members of the finance committee, campaign committees, have taken in over a million dollars from just seven pharma companies. Thirteen Democrats took in about $600,000 in the same time frame. 
Um, and those contributions are only a very small percentage of the total contributions pharmaceutical company PACs spend on elections. In 2007 and 18, for example, Pfizer uh, spent over $2 million in federal election campaigns. Merck and AbbVie both spent nearly $1.2 million. So you've got millions and millions of dollars flowing from Big Pharma to do everything they can to preserve the status quo. Uh, obscene profits, high prices, keeping, keeping uh, options for consumers down, trying to stop uh, the development of generic drugs, uh, try, just doing everything they can to hang on um, to an obsolete approach to governance. Um, it's, it's an issue that goes well beyond big pharma, and it goes to almost every issue of importance before the United States Congress. And the only thing that people have is their voice in a democracy. Um, and this is going to be, an, this is an important issue. This is the kind of issue that seniors who vote in large numbers um, can get galvanized around. And if you don't think elections have consequences, folks, well, the elections have consequences. You've elected now a, a House of Representatives across the country, which has gotten the message. I know Lloyd Doggett from Texas, who uh, wants to give the government the power to negotiate directly with Medicare. He is a good guy. He's a Texas Democrat who chairs the health subcommittee of Ways and Means, and he's got a bill to allow the government to negotiate with Medicare. Now, that bill doesn't look like it has a great chance in the Senate, which is Republican-controlled. So with my best partisan hat on, I'll say elections have consequences, and we need a government that is responsive to people, not to, uh, and, and, and that means electing representatives who are not simply in the pockets of big industry. And that's hard to find. And, and now, as a, with my bipartisan hat on, I'll say that the whole system stinks from the ground up uh, corporations and their lobbying money have undue influence on what uh, our members of Congress and the Senate do, and it's time to put a stop to it. 2020 is coming, and it's, I mean, it, it's got to happen. Um, tell us, Max, what is the administration's approach? What is the Trump administration's approach, if any, to uh, this debate? Well, you know, I, I watched uh, the Republican uh, primary debates, uh, 17 of them running for president, and uh, I, I may have watched them all. Uh, and there was only one candidate, our current president, who said time and again, uh, I will, will not cut Social Security, I will not cut Medicare, I will not cut Medicaid. Unfortunately, the budget that he introduced, it's his budget on Monday, uh, tells us those were empty promises. He also said that he was committed to giving uh, a Medicare, the government, uh, the ability to negotiate for the best price for prescription drugs. So far, there has been silence uh, on this issue from the administration. Yes, they have come up with some pr proposals that uh, are, have merit, but they nibble at the edges of what the problems are with high cost of prescription drugs. So we're not, we're not getting uh, any signal whatsoever that the administration will come down 
on the side of consumers. And all of those uh, members of Congress that have enjoyed the largesse of the pharmaceutical companies are going to have to make a decision at some point soon. Is that a priority for them, or is uh, uh, re-election and uh, listening uh, to their constituents a priority? And uh, as you said, elections have consequences, and I think we're going to see either change in the attitudes of, of these companies, despite the uh, contributions they've received, or we're going to have to, or we're going to see a turnover, uh, in addition to what we saw in the last Congress uh, in the next election uh, next November. We've been talking with Max Rickman. Uh, Max is a 16-year-plus veteran of Capitol Hill, president and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, one of the nation's most influential senior advocacy and education membership organizations. We've been talking about the high cost of prescription drugs and the power of big pharma to sway the debate. Uh, Both Max and I encourage people to do one important thing, get out and vote when the time comes, and meanwhile, put pressure on your representatives in Congress and in the Senate to make sure that they know uh, that you want action on the high price of prescription drugs and that you don't want them listening to Big Pharma. You want them listening to the people. Max, thanks for joining us. Paul, thank you so much for inviting me. And let me just say that uh, uh, consumers, Seniors, I myself sorely miss your common sense approach to uh, to legislating, um, and um, happy to have an opportunity to be on your program anytime. Great, we'll have you back, and we're going to continue uh, this really important uh, this important conversation uh, because uh, there's a lot going on that affects a very very important segment of the population that you and I now belong to, seniors who um, are counting on Social Security and Medicare. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, and other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Don't go away. We'll be back to wrap up after this. <laughs> 